If you have your Bible, the book of Nehemiah today, Nehemiah chapter number one, Nehemiah. Somebody asked me in the first service, after the first service, which time do you preach the best? I said, well, after the first service, I've practiced on them, but I'm also out of gas. So uh, you just kind of have to take your pick on that, huh? <laughs> so uh, is it better to have a practiced sermon or a fresh preacher? I don't know. Nehemiah chapter 1. Would you stand when you find it, please? And let's read together from God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Follow with me, if you will. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month Chislu in the 20th year as I was in Shushan in the palace. Now, that's a mouthful there, isn't it? But Nehemiah, he is... The Jews always gave their father's name, and he said it was in the month Chislu, the Jewish calendar. In the 20th year, the reign of the king, I was in Shushan, and the king here is Artaxerxes, a very famous name in ancient history. The secular world knows all about Artaxerxes. You st if you studied secular history, you read about Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was there with him in the palace in the Persian Empire. And then he said, I was in the palace, and Hananiah, one of my brethren, came. Now, I don't think he means a blood brother. He means a Jew, a fellow brother in, uh, in Israel. He and certain men of Judah had been to visit Jerusalem. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left to the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So this man had just come back from a, a trip to, to the city of Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant that are left to the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and a reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down, I wept, I mourned certain days, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. Thank you, and you may be seated. The message is time to rebuild, a time to rebuild, the story of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is the book of a, a biography of a man's life. It's the story of a wonderful man. There's not a better man in all the Scripture than Nehemiah. He is a Jew, and he had risen to prominence in the new Persian Empire. Now, remember, Daniel and the group of people that were with him went down to Babylon in captivity. It was the Babylonian Empire, but you remember in the book of Daniel that in one night, the city was overthrown, chapter number five of Daniel. And the Persians came, the Medo-Persian Empire came in and conquered Babylon and took over, and it became known later as just the Persian Empire. It's one of the most famous empires in history, it's one of the few worldwide empires following Babylon. And 
Nehemiah, instead of going back to Jerusalem after the captivity ended, Nehemiah decided to stay in Jerusalem, to stay in his, uh, to stay there and to become a part of the empire of the new Babylonian or the, the Persian king. He was not a preacher, Nehemiah, though he has a book in the Bible named after him that he wrote. He was not a prophet. He doesn't give any prophecies about the future. He just simply states an account of his own life. He was not a priest. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was what we today would call a civil servant. He was a member, if you will, of the president's cabinet. He had a high-ranking position. In verse number 11, he tells you, I was the cupbearer. Now, when I hear the word cupbearer, I think of some guy that hands a cup or waits on the king or brings the king his food. And he did that, of course, but that's not anything at all what the cupbearer was really involved in. A cupbearer in those days was one of the most prominent advisor that the king had. The cupbearer was a counselor. If, if he would have been serving in the White House, the cupbearer would have been equivalent to the chief of staff. He would have been over all the other staff members that were serving the king at that time. Above all, the cupbearer had to be trustworthy. He had to have impeccable integrity and trustworthiness. He had to be so loyal to the king that he was willing to be loyal literally to the death. Because in those days, instead of having elections to <laughs> replace the current administration, they just poisoned the king. And as you read down through history, over and over and over, you see that kings were poisoned by members of their own staff that would rise up against them. So one of the duties of the cupbearer was to taste the food for the king. So that if somebody was trying to poison him, then the cupbearer would die and the king would live and the monarchy would proceed. It would go on. And so above everything, this man had to have trustworthiness and integrity beyond the norm and, and just multiplied many times over. So he was the king's cupbearer. Look in verse 2. He was a patriot also. He inquired of his friend, his brother, Hanani. He said, you have been back to Jerusalem. You've seen firsthand what is going on. Tell me what's happening back in our country. And Hanani told him the account that brought him much sadness. But he he, Nehemiah, though he didn't live in his country, he loved his country. I would call him a patriot of the first rank. He loved his nation, though he was living 900 miles away in Persia. In verse 4, we discover that this high official is also a man of great prayer. He says, so I prayed to God. And if you'll read the entire book of Nehemiah, over and over and over, you'll see phrases like that one popping out. So I prayed. So I made my prayer to God. Terminology like that and he says it repeatedly through the book, though he is a busy public official at the right hand of the king, he is a man of great prayer. He's also an unselfish man. 
I want to just describe to you this man so you'll get to know him or to remind you about things you've already known about him because he is such an important character and such a model for us. And he's a man of unselfishness. He is willing, we'll find out in a moment, to leave his very, very uh, prestigious, powerful position to leave the palace and go back to Jerusalem with all the problems that are in Jerusalem and serve. He is not a guy who is, his only desire is to work his way up the ladder. This is a man who is willing to give himself for his people. In fact, he's obviously a very wealthy man. And later on in the book, we read that he fed 150 Jews every single day for 12 years. So he is a man of great means. It would have been a great sacrifice for him to go back and help rebuild the wall. And yet he's willing to do it with his wealth and with his position. He's willing to leave it all and go back and serve his people. And the last thing I will call your attention to is he's a man of action. In chapter 2, he begins to act. We won't get very far into that today. But he believed that God would use him, that God could use him, and that God could change things through him. And so we see a man here, a man of real action in his life. Number one, if you're taking notes and an outline with me, I want you to notice there the bad news that came from Jerusalem. He heard some bad news coming out of Jerusalem from his friend, and let's read it again. Hanani said to me in verse 3, the remnant, the people that have left captivity and have gone back to Israel, they are in the providence, are in the province, and they're in great affliction and reproach, which means disgrace. They're living in shame. They have nothing. They're in abject poverty. The walls of the city have been broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. When the Babylonians came in and took the city of Jerusalem and uh, made captive the whole nation, in fact, of course, you remember the story from the book of Daniel, how they went in and they tore down those magnificent walls that had taken them decades to build. Those walls were so high, they were like 30 and 40 feet high. Those walls were wide enough that they would drive a chariot around it like you would like a one-lane highway. Those walls were impenetrable, so they thought, until the Babylonians came and found a way to enter the city. And so in those days, cities depended on their walls for their security and their safety and their protection. So now the walls are all broken down. But the sad thing is the walls have been broken down for 100 years. The walls have been laying. The rubble that once was the wall was laying there on the ground, and it had been laying there for almost 100 years Nobody had tried to, to repair it. Nobody had tried to rebuild the city for 100 years during 70 years of captivity. And now for at least 20 years afterward, the walls and the rubble had just laid there. And the gates were burned with fire. Now, what's the significance of that? Gates, of course, in ancient cities were far more than just uh, a, a covering over a, a, an opening in the wall somewhere like our door is. The gates to the city 
was really the hub of the city, the business life of the community. The uh, gates of the city, you remember that it says that Lot went down to Sodom and he sat in the gate. What did that mean? Why, why did it say he sat in the gate? It didn't mean he sat in the door of the opening in the city wall. What, the, what that meant was the gate was the place of commerce. It was, the, it was like our courthouse. It was where legal transactions were carried out. Boaz wanted to marry Ruth over in the book of Ruth. And where does he go? He goes to the gates of the city of Babylon because that's where you would go if you wanted to carry out a legal transaction to record a marriage or to sell land to somebody to gain title deed to a piece of property, you would go to the gate. And so it was a place of legal transaction. It was a place of business dealings. People would go there, and there would be a big bazaar uh, that would go for a block in each direction from each of the gates of Jerusalem. Around each, each city gate, there was this hub of business activity. They were selling food and clothing and all these different kinds of things. It, so it was a place of business. It was a place of the legal transaction, the courthouse of the day, if you will. It was a place of social gatherings. People would go there. They would know there's a great crowd. I'm going to meet my friends if I go to the gate of the city. So the gates are significant. Now, the walls are down. They provide, provided security and protection and safety and strength. And the gates are down. They've been burned when the Babylonians came in 90 years before. And so the gates mean that all real serious activity in the city has ceased. There's no place to carry on those kinds of transactions. And so the city's just in a terrible, terrible shape. And it's been like that forever. Nobody has tried to fix it, to repair it, to rebuild it, to do anything with it. And then it's affected the people. And so you look at the people here, and it says that the people are, they're in disgrace, really. They're shamed. They're in affliction. It uses the word affliction, and it uses the word reproach. Can't you imagine what your morale would be living in a place like that? It's just a place of hopelessness. It was just like, uh, uh, well, one of the prophets describe it as a place where the jackals came at night, the wild animals, and they would forage around in those ruins hoping to find something that they could eat and to sustain them. It was a sad, sad environment that they reported on here. How did Nehemiah respond, number two? We'll look in verse number four. It came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down. You know, you sat down when there's bad, bad news. You're shocked. He said, I, the news is so bad, I just got to sit down for a minute. He sat down and he said, I wept. Why do we weep? Do you know humans are the only creation of God that weep? We talk about weeping willows, but they really don't weep. And we look at the animals, and your dog can't cry. And we, I saw a dog on TV. Now they got one on there on a commercial that can talk like you can't believe. Have you seen that one? But they don't weep. Only humans weep because we're made in the image of God. And we have a soul. And we have emotions. And we can feel 
And we have empathy. We can feel for other people. We can put ourselves in their place. And so Nehemiah, hearing this horrible news and no progress had been done in his country, he says, I'm going to sit down. I'm stunned by this. And he begins to weep. He cries. Two reasons we weep. We weep when there's intense pain. A little child gets hurt or stung or falls or gets a scrape, and they start crying. First thing they do. We don't have to teach them to do that. At the first sign of pain, we weep. And then not only do we weep over pain, we weep with sadness. And when bad things happen, weeping is our God-given way to express our feelings and our emotion. The tears that Nehemiah shed that day were tears of compassion. He wasn't in physical pain, but he was in pain in his soul. He suffered with the remnant of people that had left and gone back and had no way to help themselves and were living in such deplorable conditions. He wept. Verse 4 again. He mourned. Why do people mourn? We mourn when there's loss. We mourn if there's a death and we lose a loved one. We mourn if we lose something of great value to us. We mourn if we go home and our house is on fire, God forbid, because there's a great loss. We mourn with losses. And when Nehemiah heard the news of Jerusalem and his home country that he loved so much and what has been lost there, he goes into mourning. He's bereaved. I was talking to someone recently, and their heart was broken over their child. The child had gone astray. The child was on drugs. The child was rebellious and wouldn't even communicate with the parents. They didn't even know where the child was. And they were talking to me, and tears were streaming down their face. And they said, it feels like he's dead. And I said, sure it does, because you've suffered a loss, a loss of your dreams, your hopes, your plans, how you would like to see this child, how you would like to help this child, how you'd like to pour your love upon this child, and all that's gone now. You are grieving In fact, I've seen parents grieve more before the funeral than I have after the funeral sometimes. We mourn because of losses, and Nehemiah saw what had been lost in Israel. Then it said he fasted, verse 4 again. I don't know if this is an intentional fast like we're doing here on the first Thursday of every month, or was this, he was so sad his appetite was just gone. You know, you watch what we do here. When someone dies, we carry over tons of food to people. And so often they say, what? Oh, I appreciate you bringing all that food, but I don't have any appetite. And so I don't know which it was with Nehemiah, but he couldn't eat. And then in verse 5, notice with me, he prays. He prays. And I want to analyze that prayer a little bit. But before I do, I want to ask you, are you praying? Because for two months this year, I just pounded away at praying. Every message was about prayer. 
I'm hoping that I'm leading this church and teaching this church to pray, to pray about everything, but especially to pray right now. Ladies and gentlemen, if we're not going to pray now with what is happening in America, I don't think we're ever going to pray. I mean, we are in desperate need of people falling on their faces before God and crying out to Him with, with fervency, with emotion, with, with heart, not little memorized prayers that we've learned in Sunday school, not repeating the Lord's Prayer by rote, but I mean crying out to God like Nehemiah cries out to God right here in this passage. And let me show you what I mean by that. If you'll look in verse 5, we'll look at his prayer a little bit, okay? In verse number 5, he said to God, I beseech thee. Beseech has the idea of begging. Beseeching has the idea of urgency. Beseeching someone is, is asking them to do something, but asking it with with emotion, with desperation in our heart. It's not a cold thing like, I beseech you. No, it's emotional. It has, it has passion with it. I beseech you. I beg you, O Lord. I'm desperate, O Lord, is what he's saying. The great and terrible God that keeps covenant or keeps your promises. And mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He says that God is merciful to those that love him, but not just love him, that obey him as well, that keep his commandments. Just look at the text. It's self-explanatory, isn't it? And then he continues in verse 6, let your ear now be attentive. Give me your attention, God. I mean, Nehemiah, come on. God is the omniscient God. He knows everything. Why are you telling him to give you his attention? Because you don't understand, I'm desperate. The walls have been down for 90-some years, and nobody is trying to do anything to help our country. And so he's desperate. Let your ear be attentive, God, and let your eyes be open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. It's a continuous prayer. He prayed without ceasing. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. And so he includes himself in the sins of the nation. We have sinned against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. Notice what he does here. He says, we have sinned collectively, and then I have sinned personally. He's not accusing other people. He's not looking down on other people in condescension as he prays. We have sinned, but Lord, I want you to know I and my father's house, my family, we've all sinned as well. And so we have a man who is a humble man. It takes humility to pray like that. You don't look down your nose like that Pharisee that went up to the temple in the book of Luke that Jesus talked about and said, I thank you that I'm not like other people. No. What's this prayer like? This is a prayer of a broken and humble man, a man with deep compassion and concern for his people and for his nation. 
He goes on in verse 7, we've dealt very corruptly against thee. And we have not kept your commandments, nor your statutes, nor your judgments, which you commanded to Moses. Remember, I beseech you again, he says, I beg you, the word that you commanded Moses, saying, if you transgress, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, from afar, and I will bring them into the place that I've chosen to set my name now. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, for the third time, he says, I beseech you, I beg you, let now your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And that's where that part of the prayer, that intercessory prayer, that praying with passion and heart, to Almighty God with fervency and desperation. It ends right there with a colon. That's his prayer, this praying man. But then, notice, he says, I have something else I want to say, Lord. I pray that thy servant this day, that you will bless me and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. The only thing he prays is that one little phrase at the end of the prayer. What is he saying? He is saying, Lord, I'm going to go and talk to the king. And cupbearers, it's even dangerous for them to go because if I go and tell the king I want to leave, he could kill me because he could think that I know something that I'm not telling him that there's a plot against him. Would you work in his heart that he would give me mercy so when I go and make my appeal to him, that he will grant me the mercy I need because I'm going to act. I want to do something. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem, and we're going to rebuild those walls. And so he prays that. Now, I don't have time to go into chapter 2 today, but he acted there. He went to the king, and basically he asked for a leave of absence. He told him about the condition of the nation. The walls are down, king. Nobody's repaired anything. The gates have been burned up with fire. The people are in affliction and they're a reproach. They're living in shame. Somebody has got to go and do something, and I want to go. Will you give me a leave of absence that I may depart and go there and help them? And the king granted him his request. God worked in his heart, and he showed mercy upon him. And then Nehemiah said to him, basically, now there's one more thing. I'm going to need the materials to build those walls with. And the king said, basically, write your own check. And he acted, and the rest of the book is that story. Now, we won't take the rest of the book today. We'll stop right there in the exposition of God's Word. And I'll do a little application would anybody here agree or disagree with me today that in America the walls are down, that the gates are burned, government is dysfunctional, the gates, 
the place of legal transaction, the place of business. Would anybody in America today say that everything is healthy in America? The walls are down, our protection, our security. The economy has been greatly affected. We're $26 trillion in debt. Does that affect your security? We, are, we who are looking to the Social Security check, will it come now with $26 trillion indebtedness? How long can the country continue to borrow money that is worth? How much is your dollar bill worth if they can print $3.5 trillion of them just like that? The walls are down. The protection, the security, whether it be economic or whatever it may be. The White House was almost breached last weekend. They didn't even tell the full story of how close it came. The walls are down. COVID-19 came in March, and the country was panicked. I was panicked. I thought, my goodness, I better check my salvation again. I may die. Everybody in the country was thinking, 2.2 million people are going to die? 100 million Americans are going to get sick? That's one out of three people? Well, thank God it hadn't happened like that. But they put the country in what they called a lockdown. Isn't that an interesting figure? You know where they do lockdowns? Jail. That's a jail term. I remember it when I was there. Lockdowns. You go to your cell and they lock the door and you don't come out. That's what they said to us. We're going to lock you down. And for two and a half months, basically, we did. And if that wasn't bad enough, then... In a great act of injustice that's reprehensible and diabolically evil, a policeman kills an unarmed black man and has to put it, they have to put it on TV and we have to watch a man die, basically murdered on live television. But then the protests that followed, they turned quickly into riots and into burning and into looting. I hope you'll come back tonight. I think I'm going to preach on the spirit of lawlessness in America. The spirit of lawlessness. It was bad. It was horrible. It was reprehensible for that cop to kill that man. But it was just as bad what happened afterward. You watch your TV today. When I watch the TV and I see the silhouettes of people running against the flames and the smoke and the pictures that are on television, on the news, I think it's the French Revolution. It looks like what the tale of two cities describes in the French Revolution. It looks like Russia in 1917 when they had the revolution and it became a communist state. It looks like the Red Guards running through the streets of China and going home to home to anybody who had anything and killing and mutilating and robbing and burning and 
all that happened during that terrible time in the 60s. If that isn't bad enough, then out in Seattle, we have a group of people, radicals, anarchists, revolutionaries, neo-Marxists, call them whatever you want to call them. And they've started their own country, and it would be funny. <laughs> it would be funny. I think the Florence Baptist Temple security team could go out there and take that country. I don't think it's a real country. And the mayor gives approval and aids and abets it. And the governor. And we wonder what kind of a world are we, what in God's name is happening? I know I've talked about this stuff a lot, but this is where we are. I mean, what do you want me to talk about? Um, you know, shopping trip? And there's not a passage of Scripture in all the Bible that's more relevant and descriptive of what's happening in America than Nehemiah chapter 1. And if that weren't enough, then in Atlanta, as you now know, night before last, another man is killed in fires and mayhem. Boy, what a picture of America. How do we respond? Well, we weep. Norma won't mind me telling you this. She was kind of mopey the other day. When you live with people, you know, you get to know them and you sense something. We communicate with our spirits, not just with our lips. And I could just tell that something was going on with her. I said, honey, what's wrong? And we talked a minute, and she, she was just concerned about the country. She said, this really bothers me, and tears welled up in her eyes. She says, I just can't get it off my mind. It's surreal. It doesn't seem, doesn't seem right every day. It's something else every day. When I was working on the staff in Indianapolis, in the last few weeks there, I went to the preacher over and over, and he gave me, <laughs> in fact, I didn't tell anybody for years afterwards, he gave me a stack of sermon outlines, and that's what I preached from the first few months here. And he gave me a little book of poems. He said, you might want that. I got an extra copy of it. Take that. You might use it sometime. Fifty years later, I'm still using it. And here's one of the poems he handed me that day. I wept for a land where men were strong, through faith and prayer and holy song, where we were quick to punish wrong and quickly help the weak along. I wept for America last night. I wept for a land where, good, where work was good with hoe or hammer or welding hood, and houses were built of stone and wood, and where once the yawning prairie stood, I wept for America last night. I wept for a land where white and brown could safely walk the streets of town and talk together without a frown, nor fear the other would knock him down. I wept for America last night. I wept for a land where those in schools had deep respect for democracy's tools and taught the young to obey the rules where the wise were exalted and not the fools. I wept for America last night. 
I wept for a land where the Bible's read and sentence passed on the guilty head that homes be free from fear and dread for God shall justly judge the dead. I wept for America last night. I wept for a land of pilgrim's pride where the rich and the poor walked side by side and neither thought to sneer in pride for both owned Christ as God. I wept for America last night. Nehemiah wept. He mourned. He mourned. Why do we mourn? We grieve for losses. And he knew they were losing something. They had lost something very, very precious. That beautiful city of Zion that the psalmist sings about over and over and over. The psalmist said, Zion, shall I ever forget thee? I might as well forget my right hand. Well, Nehemiah remembered that, and he said, we've lost something so precious. Let me tell you something, church, and those who are watching in other places. We're losing something precious in America We're losing something that there's never been before on this planet except in the nation of Israel itself. We're losing freedom, and we're losing it every day. We've been losing it ever since this COVID thing started. And we're still losing it, and they rarely give it back when once the government has taken it. And if I sound like a right-winger, you just don't know how right I am. If I told you how right I am, some of you couldn't handle it. But I tell you, we are losing something. Abraham Lincoln called it the last best hope on earth. The last best hope that mankind will ever have is the United States. And with all of its warts and all of its blemishes, blemishes and all of its flaws and all of its sins and all of its wrongdoing, it's still the best place on this planet. In your Bible, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter number 9, please. Turn with me there. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. You'll want to mark it in your Bible when I tell you or show it to you because of its significance. Jeremiah 9 and chapter number 20, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord. Boy, you read that over and over in the Bible, but that means listen closely because this is God speaking to us. This is not a man. Thus saith the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. So you have a couple of PhDs. Don't glory in it. You're strong and have influence. Don't glory in it. You're wealthy. You don't have to worry about money. Don't glory in it, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise 
loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. Note that. God said there's some things I delight in. There are things that bring pleasure and joy to my heart. This is God speaking. What are the things that bring delight to God? Go back up into the text. Three things. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. Mark that in your Bible. Loving kindness, or we would just say love. Love and kindness. God delights in us showing love and kindness to people. Love, you know, as I've told you through the years, is an action word. It's not the way you feel. I can look at you, and I may not have deep feelings about it, but love means I treat you the way that Christ would have me treat you. That applies to every single person because Jesus said in one place, I want you to love your neighbor like you love yourself. And then in the same verse, he says, I want you to even love your enemy. Now, I can do pretty good with the neighbors and friends, but the enemies, the people who despitefully use me, the people who people who have lied about me, who have distorted, who have, have run down my character, the people who tried to hurt me or cheat me, yeah, you're to love them too. That's the command of the Lord. And he says, when I see a Christian do that, I delight in them. I bring joy to my Lord's heart when I love my neighbor and I love my enemy even. What's the second thing he does? He says is he says, judgment. I delight in judgment. Now, in your King James Bible, over and over and over in the New Testament is where you will see this, the word judgment is, is synonymous with justice. Sometimes you'll see justice. Sometimes it's translated judgment. It's the same in both places. The root word is the same. In fact, the root word is verdict. God says, I delight in a just verdict. That's what that means, judgment. I delight in just verdicts. God wants us to live in a just society. And if you're a Christian, not only does it delight the Lord, but it's, it's a part of your being, a part of your makeup. You want everybody to be treated fairly. I want George Floyd. I want justice in that. And you do too if you love the Lord. You don't want anybody to be treated unjustly. I want George Floyd to receive the justice that would be due him, or maybe his killer. Maybe I should say it that way. But you know what? I want the babies, thousands of them who were killed in their mother's womb yesterday, I want them to have a little justice anymore too. <laughs> justice is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Justice is for everybody. Somebody said to me, because you preached, I preached a, a series of sermons on on this whole social justice movement. It's coming into our churches like a flood now. And it's, it's called the Woke Church. There's a trendy book out now, the Woke Church, which means the church, we're supposed to be sensitive to all this stuff going on in our culture. We're to be woke. We're to be awakened to it. And, and you don't know how extensive that is across the country right now. It's, it's really incredible. And somebody said to me, are you for social justice? 
I said, I'm for justice without any adjectives in front of it. Stop and think about that. I'm for justice. Nothing before it and a period after it. I am for justice, period. And whether it involves white or black or rich or poor or good or bad, I'm for justice because the Bible says that God delights in that. I am not for seeing the mission of our churches changed to a social gospel orientation to where the mission of the church becomes to improve a society that's on the way to hell. Anyhow, I'm not going to work to make this a better place to go to hell from. I'm going to work to get men and women saved so they don't have to go there. And then the third thing the Lord delights in, He in, He delights in loving kindness. He delights in justice. And He delights in righteousness. Do you know what righteousness is? Heavy academic definition. Doing right. That's just, that's righteousness. Doing the right thing. It's obedience literally to law, to moral laws. A righteous woman, a righteous man is a person who's obedient to moral principles. In other words, they're law-abiding. They're law-abiding. And God delights in love that shows kindness, justice, and righteousness. Now, that's who I want to be. That's who I'm preaching to help you become as well as we make this journey together here. Nehemiah mourned because he saw that being lost in his society, and then he acted. And you and I are not going to be able to fulfill what God's plan and purpose for us here is if all we do is come to church and sit here and listen to Bill Monroe preach. No, we have to act. And each of us live in a little piece of the world and we can take the fragrance of Jesus Christ into that place in the world. We can't change the whole world, but we can sure change the atmosphere in our world. Every one of us can make a difference. Edward Everett Hale said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything but I can do something. And what I can do, by the grace of God, I will do. Today, I hope that will become your mantra. I'm only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And by the grace of God, I will do. And God can use me to influence people for Christ. Well, the thing that changes people, the only real change agent, the only permanent and eternal change agent is, of course, the gospel. Bad news, 
Man, every man and woman on the planet is lost. They're sinner. The penalty for our sins is death. Death means physical death, but it also means death eternally in the lake of fire. But the good news is, is that God became a man. He came to the earth. He lived a perfect life so he could qualify as our sacrifice. He became the substitute for every man, woman, boy, and girl ever born. A little boy in a little village somewhere in Africa, Jesus died for him. Some working man on an oil rig up in Alaska, Jesus Christ died for him. Some Indian down in the jungle of South America, Jesus Christ died for him. A Chinese man in his business suit in Beijing, Jesus died for him. And Jesus died for everyone hearing me today. And most precious of all to me is he died for me. He lived a life I couldn't live. And he died the death that I was condemned to die. And he did it because he loved me. And if I've had that kind of grace given to me, then what kind of grace do I owe to everybody else? And the way to change people's hearts is the gospel. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.